Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to this week's podcast, including stories on a Brantford plane crash, healing lodges, and who gets in, who doesn't, and we hear from the mother of killer Luca Magnata. Hope you enjoy it. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, we talked at this time yesterday a, about a plane crash in Brantford. A husband and wife are dead after that crash uh, that happened at the Brantford Municipal Airport. To talk more about this and information and give us a bit of an update, Ken Johnson is with us from the OPP and on the air now. Ken, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. So what can you tell us about this uh, accident, Ken? Uh, our officers were called from the County Brand OPP just uh, right around 8 a.m. in the morning from an employee at the Brantford Municipal Airport who uh, in the morning located a plane that had crashed overnight and there were two deceased parties inside that plane. And uh, we understand that now those people have been identified, correct? Yeah, they have. Uh, it's Donald and Mildred Chamberlain. Uh, Donald was 76, Mildred was 81 and they were both from the Brampton area. Do we know anything more about the, the flight, Ken, and, and where it came in or where it was coming from in, in, in regard to the accident timeline when it actually did happen? No, we don't know the, uh, the exact time. We are still looking for uh, some people to come forward, and, and we are following up with everything that we get. Um, at this point, though, the Transport Safety Board uh, really are the lead investigators on this. The OPP... We do the initial uh, investigation at the time and uh, deal with the situation on the ground. Uh, now they, they have their specialized investigators who will start looking into, you know, all the aspects of the plane and the aircraft and the pilot and his experience and where the plane came from and all of those aspects of the investigation. Uh, as we talked about yesterday, uh, and you mentioned that uh, employees from the airport uh, came to work in the morning yesterday to discover this. Uh, anything, uh, it seems odd that nobody would have heard or saw this. Your thoughts on that and, and any, anyone in the area notice anything different here? Yeah, we so, so the municipal airport is open from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m. That's when the employees leave um, the airport proper. But the airport is always available to pilots uh, as they're coming in. There's a uh, system where they key the microphone um, several times, and that turns on the runway lights. Uh, so they can, in, in essence, they could use any airport any time with though, that lighting system so that they can land safely. Um we do have a few people who did notice uh, plane activity throughout the evening. But again, I think if you live near the airport, um, that's a normal thing. Like they say over 100 planes come and go from there daily. So to hear a plane at 2 or 3 in the morning, I don't think is, is, is out of the ordinary for them. Hmm. Uh, and we understand the runway lights were activated when this plane was, was in the area? My understanding is that the runway lights were on, yes. And still no word whether they were taking off or landing at this point, correct? No. And you know what? I, uh, we have not uh, been, been given any information about what their flight plan was. Hmm. Uh, reaction in the area around this, is it quite a rural area, uh, farmland, that yeah, sort of thing? It's, it's rural. It's just outside of the city of Brantford, uh, probably about a six-minute drive from the city limits of Brantford. So it is a rural area. Um, people in the area, there were quite a few people around yesterday who... Uh, I mean, again, they're, they're used to planes coming and going all day long, and, and a lot of them actually have planes that live in the area. Um, so, yeah, there was some definite concern, and, and the two people involved are people that were known at the airport. They, they frequented there often. Um, they were a, a very lovely couple is what everyone was saying.
So that being said, it sounds like they were certainly uh, involved in that community in the sense that uh, they flew quite a bit in and out of there. Yeah, they did. Yeah, correct. Uh, do we know anything about uh, medical conditions or anything of that nature? No, we haven't been given any of that information. Again, that would be the Transport Safety Board uh, that would look into all the aspects of that. Uh, and what about uh, fire or anything like that? Because you'd think that uh, maybe someone would have seen, but I guess there's been no evidence that, that there was any sort of fire or any. No, any? There, it, it didn't appear there was any fire on the plane. It uh, It appeared that it came in. Um, or was taking off either which way, and and something happened at the end of the runway. So there was no indication of it. There's no indication that, uh, uh, like, in the morning when 911 was called, the fire department and the Brant County Ambulance Service did attend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that time, there there was really nothing that could be done by anyone. As you mentioned, uh, it's, it's, it seems that planes go in and out of this uh, airport at all times uh, of the day and night and that it is unmanned. I guess really no situation like this in the past. I mean, there's no reason to, to think this is any different or there's any situation that's, that's any different from any other day. I mean, these, these unfortunately, things just happen. Uh, many thought that yeah. it's unusual that, that, that airports aren't manned, but I guess this is very typical of scenarios like this all over the country. Yeah, most of these rural, uh, smaller airports um, that, that aren't running a large commercial business out of or anything are, are not manned after hours. They may have different varying hours from airport to airport, um, but the majority of them are not manned after hours, and that's why they have that system in, in place with the, uh, with the radio system on the plane that they can key the mic several times and turn the lights on. That's amazing. Uh, when will we know more from uh, about this investigation? Any word on that, Ken? Yeah, the Transport uh, Safety Board advised yesterday that once they have more, they will release that information. But their investigation, they do a very thorough investigation, and it not only includes all aspects of the pilot, um, the weather, the where they flew from, the aircraft itself. And you can imagine how tedious that inspection will be going over an aircraft from one end to the other to ensure there was any mechanical issues. What was the weather like up there around that time overnight? Uh, you know what? It was cold. Uh, there was a little bit of snow falling, uh, but nothing uh, nothing drastic. We didn't have any, um, any weather alerts or anything like that. I would say probably we were hovering right around zero to minus one. All right, Ken. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Okay. Good luck. Take care. Ken Take Johnson care. with us from the OPP, again, talking uh, about the crash at the Brantford Municipal Airport that happened uh, overnight. Investigation yesterday. Investigation is continuing and now in the hands of uh, the transport people. We're going to bring in, uh, again, Victor, uh, Victor Bohm, and he uh, is a pilot that flies out of that airport. Uh, Victor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing well. Your thoughts on now that we have a little bit more clarity on what this happened uh, since you, of course, uh, involved in that community and fly in and out of that airport? Yeah, it's uh, of course, it's, 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 it's always a shock, and it uh, doesn't feel good. It makes you kind of sad when you hear about it. Um, you know, my, what my thoughts were, which I was pondering afterwards, and of course, like it's kind of everyone thinks it's kind of strange that the plane could have gone down like seven hours or so before someone someone heard or even seen it. And it's uh, there's different things that scenarios that take place when you take off from uh, from an airport. Um, so some pilots will file a, a simple itinerary, which is more or less allowing some responsible person know what you're doing. And uh, if you don't seem to report uh, after a certain time to them, 
then they may want to call search and rescue for you. Um, so that's one, one thing that takes place. Another thing is you would file a flight plan with flight services. If you file a flight plan with flight services, then um, there's someone uh, basically about a half hour after you should land, you should have informed flight services that you have landed. And usually within an hour of you not reporting, they would send out search and rescue on your route. So my thinking is perhaps they did not have a flight plan filed because if they had a flight plan filed, they may not have canceled that flight plan until nor I don't normally cancel them until I'm on the ground and I cancel them with my cell phone because the radio doesn't work very well from the ground. So, and another uh, way that people are, are tracked while they're flying is what they call flight following. And you would just, uh, you would get a hold of a, a Toronto Flight Service air traffic controller and he would hand you off as you fly along to another one who looks after a different territory. Then you'd be hand off to another right. air traffic controller. So you're always on the radar. They know who you are. They know where you are. But usually when you're on flight following, just as you are approaching your airport, you usually say, okay, thank you very much. See you later. So they're no longer watching you anymore. Right. So that could be just a little time frame if they're on flight following where something could have happened. But if they're on a flight plan, their emergency beacon would have gone off and someone would have likely found them way before seven or eight in the morning. Uh, how often do pilots not file some sort of flight uh, plan or tell people what they're doing? I mean, is this something that pilots will do every single time? That's just how you're trained? Or is it, eh, I'm just going up for a spin, you know, and I don't need to do that? Yeah, I think um, like just going up for a spin, you're usually going to just stay real close to the airport. You're going to do a little bit of practice maneuvers, but usually you still tell someone where you're going at the airport. Like in the case of a flight school, you rent an airplane, you take off. They want to know where you're going to fly your airplane. They know you're going to be gone for half an hour, 45 minutes. Right. And so they know the area where you're practicing. If you don't come back, they're going to go looking for you pretty soon, shortly after, right? Plus you're likely within radio range mm -hmm. of the airport. The airport does have a radio that someone might answer if you call it, or they might not. They don't have to. There's no radio person. So there is a radio there, They can, and they are monitoring a certain channel, and it's the channel that all the pilots would talk to each other as they're approaching that airport. Uh, the fact that th this couple wasn't found until uh, the next morning, would that lead you to believe that perhaps they didn't file a flight plan of some sort? I, I'm thinking they likely were not on a flight plan. They may have been on flight following, which is a safe way to do it, except for the only difference is uh, usually cut it off when you're at the airport because usually you'll lose likely your radio contact as you get lower to the ground. So you're going to lose the person usually because the, whoever that air traffic control may be, right. you know, 50 miles away. So they can see you on radar mm -hmm. um, until you get too low and they can hear you on radio until you get too low and then they'll, you, you won't be able to hear them anymore. So, but the only difference is on a flight plan, they, uh, you could also sometimes cancel them in the air, but most of the people do it when they're on the ground with their cell phone. Uh, is there anything you can tell from uh, the pictures that we see of, of this wreckage? Well, I do have the exact same airplane. Mine is just a few years newer than that. Um, it, it's, uh, it's really hard to tell from the photos. It, it sort of seems like he was on some kind of a glide slope of some sort, like a deep decline 
it's really hard for me to actually make it. I'd hate to, hate to even speculate on it, but it, it sure doesn't look like it crashed straight down on its nose, but it had yeah. to have some, a little bit of forward motion, but really hard, hard to tell. Does it say anything, uh, the fact that uh, there is as much of this plane left? Does that mean that it was perhaps just taking off or, or certainly traveling at a, at a slower speed when this happened? Yeah, like I obviously, I think they were probably not taking off. They were likely trying to come in. That would be my thought. Um, it's uh, maybe they were taking off. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it was high, high speed. But these airplanes are—they're not that heavy. They're not like a big commercial jetliner with right. with massive tons of cargo and stuff on it. That you know, where that stuff sort of mutilates the airplane. They're they're pretty light. The airplane may be twenty one hundred to twenty four hundred pounds, and. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're pretty light in their aluminum, so they sort of fold up a little bit, but they don't get totally mutilated when they right. crash from ones that I've seen anyways. Uh, how does this shake the community of a, a group like this that, you know, where there's pilots such as, your, such as yourself who may fly for business or, or for, uh, for pleasure? Well, it, 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 it totally it does hit home, and like even yesterday, because there's a lot of people that know I fly out of Brantford with the same kind of airplane. I received quite a few phone calls to make sure I was okay. Right. So, and I said, no, it was not me. And um, so that was, uh, so there, are, yeah, and so for other, I haven't talked to a whole lot of other pilots about this, but yeah, we're all, all everyone's always shocked when it happens. And, uh and, you know, people fly for a long time. This guy's been flying a long time, according to the reports. I did not know him personally, this person, mm-hmm. or his wife. And, you know, he was already getting up there in age and uh, still flying no problem, right? So it's like, uh, wow, it is. It's, uh, is there yeah. anything, and again, obviously there's still lots of investigating to do and such, but do you think anything will come out of this? Do you think, you know, there's a way uh, to make these scenarios with these smaller airports uh safer or again this could be totally unrelated to any of that um but you know as, as far as flying in and out of situations like this you feel comfortable and safe regarding the way oh. things are oh yeah yeah i mean really the only other difference would be basically to me the important thing is basically who knows you're up there and how yeah. would they find you if something went wrong that's that's an important key yeah so uh, for me, that's why a flight plan depends on how long your journey is going to be. If whenever I fly at night and I don't do it very often, I would file a flight plan. So there's a, and you can use the flight following where you're being handed off from one uh, air traffic controller to another. You can do both. What do you love about it? About flying? Yeah. Um, it's uh, not everybody can do it. That's one thing. You are. It's. Uh, it's it's nice to be alone up there. You're mm. you're not really alone. There's more planes up there than you think, but you know they're far and few between. So it's uh, kind of a bit of a sense of freedom. Plus, it's uh, there's a thrill. You know, you can you know steep turns, a little bit of g forces. You know, it's uh, and you know you can go for lunch and visit your parents up in Perry Sound and and come back home a few hours later. <laughs> huh, wow. Victor Baum has been with us, uh, Versatech Industries, and flies out of the same airport uh, that we uh, heard of the couple losing their lives when their plane came down. Victor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, according to data from Public Safety Canada, nearly two dozen child murderers have been sent to Indigenous healing lodges since 2011. Uh, this information I, I, of relevance uh, now, obviously, after the public outrage when Terry Lynn McClintock, the woman convicted of murdering eight-year-old uh, Tory Stafford, was moved from a, uh, a prison, a medium security prison, into an Indigenous healing lodge. Lots of questions being raised here, including uh, why the father didn't find out and the family and the rest of us till months, I believe it was nine months after the fact. Usually the families are notified when these sorts of things happen. Uh, clearly they weren't. And oddly enough, as secretly as Terry Lynn McClintock was moved into a healing lodge, she was moved back out and back in prison and we're of the understanding now that uh, the criteria has changed, the policy has changed, and uh, this was an oversight on their part. That being said, what is the criteria, the criteria for getting into a lodge? Uh, do you have to be Indigenous and who makes that call? Let's bring in Lee Chappelle, Canadian Prison Consulting, and is on the line with us now. Lee, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure. Good afternoon, sir. So what is Canadian Prison Consulting? Um, well, Canadian Prison Consulting is a federal corporation. We're a firm that, that was founded in 2010. We often we work with, uh, for the most part, first-time offenders, their families, people who have no familiarity with the justice system, um, who have made a mistake in their life and are facing incarceration, often on bail. And we have a cornerstone of our work, which is ownership, accountability, insight, and remorse. We also consult with governments, provincially and federally, on prison reforms, and I do a lot of training. So what is the criteria for admission into an Indigenous healing lodge? <laughs> Simply put, uh, well, the criteria, for one, this is, this is such a nuanced story, and I know it's hard for people to understand. Um, the birth of healing lodges was, was something, I think, that we really needed in Canada, and they came around in the 1990s. We have a really disproportionate number of Indigenous inmates in our Canadian correctional system. For 2% of the population, for example, the women who are locked up in Canada, they represent 40% of women locked up. So this is a, an effort towards providing a restorative spiritual, holistic-based uh, rehabilitation uh, for these people. And, you know, I think on that point, while we have a correctional system, many of us yearn for a penal system, and the difference lies in whether you want to see criminals reform their behavior or simply suffer for it. And the punitive desire is a natural reaction and an understandable one for those who have been victims of crime. Um, however, you know, of late, what I've noted is the mass emotion, the oversimplification of this. Uh, boy, there's, there's so many flip sides. Let us not forget the fate of Ashley Smith at the hands of the correctional system, you know, just 10 years ago. A young teenage girl who was killed at the hands of the Correctional Service of Canada under horrible conditions. And, and that, too, elicited, you know, a very strong emotional response from all Canadians. 
Again, I, I'm not sure whether it has anything to do with healing lodges or rehabilitation at all. I think no. it's whether she was qualified to be in there and whether she is a candidate to be going in there. Correct. Um, well, yeah, you, you know, I, I, no, no, no. But, but I, I just don't. You know, I, I don't think this is about evaluating whether they're uh, valuable or not. Uh, obviously, they are. Okay. Um, but should she have been in one? Who makes that call? Well, that's the Correctional Service of Canada, and you know, these are people who have corrections for a life. Uh, I mean, it's their it's their career. It's their their. Um, there's so much effort put into this by the Correctional Service of Canada. These people know corrections there's there's really strong assessments in place there's vetting that is done clearly this person had made progress and was able to get to what was called a medium security albeit a healing lodge and and it is an aberration i got to say that the majority of people in canada serving life are well past their eligibility dates prior to being transferred to such a location this is an aberration so it, i mean for the most part the people that are serving uh, life sentences are kept in maximum medium security facilities and by definition that was a medium facility but it didn't have a perimeter fence um, often well past their their eligibility date so for example when you receive a life sentence there's always a number that's attached to it whether it's life 10 life 15 life 12 life 25 the number is represents the eligibility parole eligibility date um, it's not a guarantee it's just that's the date that you would be eligible for full parole and for the most part the majority of lifers in Canada go well past their eligibility dates before they make it even to a minimum never mind back to the community how do you think this happened then in your opinion should this should she have been there uh, you know I, I look at this and I certainly understand I mean it's indefensible the crime um, it, it, it's uh, it's an indefensible crime no question about it I think she was there ahead of when she should have been. Mm -hmm. Minimum securities are designed to be releasing institutions, and 95% of inmates serving time in Canada today will be released back to our communities one day. So it's a very viable, important aspect of our correctional system to have minimum security institutions. However, yes, you need to be within reach of getting out and having, you know, at your last year or two uh, prior to going there. And, and I think what they did was they righted it with something that had fallen through the cracks. I believe she got there because she earned her way there. I believe, um, I don't know a great deal, but I do know that the bulk of our, our inmate population comes from the child welfare system. Uh, most offenders uh, were victims of abuse themselves well before they um, grew up to, to do what they've done, heinous acts. And I have a sense that she really um, took ownership and, and, and they felt had progressed. She'd been there a year before this, was, or close to, before this came to light and without issue. That being said, I think that's another one of the issues that has the, both the family and the public upset, was they're right. supposed to be notified about all of this. They didn't find out till nine months later, I believe, and, and just as secretly as she was moved out, she was moved back in. Do you think, yeah, do you think that you know, plays a role here? There's a point on that. Whatever government of the day is in place, and I know the stat I, the, the, that's coming out about the 20 uh, convicted minors, killers of minors who, who have been transferred uh, over since 2011, so that would in, include both governments. I can say that the governments that are in power, the government of the day, the employer, really doesn't know a great deal about corrections, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, it, doesn't seem to, but it doesn't seem to matter what the political stripe is here. 
No, it doesn't, and they're removed from it, and 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 that's understandable. I mean, they know, for the most part, they know no more about it than you than you do, uh, or the average Canadian. It's not something that tends to um, until something like this comes about. Uh, they're it's 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 really they leave it to the corrections officials to handle their business. Um, so this and the reason it wasn't notified was she was technically transferred from medium to medium, so the security level didn't drop. And victims are not notified when security levels are dropped. They are notified when a pass is applied for or any form of release. That's when a victim is notified. So in this case, she had applied for a day pass somewhere in Saskatchewan, and that's what triggered the the awareness. I think again, I don't think this has uh, I don't think this has much to do with the relevance of healing lodges. I think no. this has to do with everything about how did she get there and who Climate. makes that sort of decision. Another issue is, uh, you know, her brother says that she's not indigenous. Uh, shouldn't the, considering truth and reconciliation and and how yep. you mentioned these stats are so high, yep. it seems odd that we've got a healing center that is designed to help indigenous people and we've got a spot being taken up by somebody who isn't well i can't speak to that i don't know if that's true or not i'm not sure what um what her culture is her background is but but certainly um i would say for the most nobody seems to but is that the reason to get into a healing lodge i mean you know that's the whole thing i mean it seems it seems as if the, the public's perception is is that she has played the system here and it has allowed her to do so again i don't think it's about the the relevant the relevance of the indigenous system as you've said and right. the stats prove that they right. prove to be positive i think it's who's driving the bus and letting people get in and out of there and that's not what it was meant for it wasn't meant for someone like terry lynn mcclintock right well I, I can't speak to how the decision uh, was made or, or who made it, other than the fact that I believe that they, they they do risk assessments every two years, and I believe I just don't know her cultural background. From my understanding, it, it's like 99% of healing lodges are made up of indigenous uh, offenders. Well, yeah, it so would seem it would, rarity. yeah, it would seem odd that, and, and again, that's raising the red flag. Is that you know, here's here's uh, centers that are set up for a certain purpose, and those people aren't being served, and said someone else who many think is duping the system is is taking that space. Are you surprised that uh, there's policy changes now being addressed here? That, as you mentioned, those lodges are designed for people who are at a certain point in their mm-hmm. sentence, which Terry Lynn McClintock clearly wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, your thoughts? On new policies moving forward on this? I think uh, when you look at it, so the, the policies that have been changed is looking at the length of the offender's sentence, um, uh, time remaining before eligible for passes or for release, um, and that, that, that anybody who's a long-term offender, a lifer, would be in the preparing to release phase of their correctional plan. And of course, institutional behavior, um, and and that's one that she clearly made the she was able to to meet that criteria. But as for the timing, I'm in full support of of this. I think what this, the the positive part of this story is, it brought to light a policy that was um, erroneous for somebody to be there at less than ten years in on life twenty five did point out. Um, something that needed to be rectified. And yes, these are important places, I believe. Um, But again, when you're nearing release and when your eligibility dates are there and you've earned your way there. And apparently the Indigenous community wasn't happy about this either for the same reasons. Well, I don't think they'd be thrilled with the, the blowback on this, the mass emotion, the oversimplification. Uh, it's a, I mean, and, I, and when I say that, I, I understand 
um, it, it brings everything into question when, when some, something like this occurs. So I believe this happened fairly quickly. I think it was reviewed. They took a look at all the information, and there was a hole in the legislation that allowed people to be uh, moved who were serving life sentences well too early into their, into their time. Do you think it's really an oversimplification? Uh, and I mean, I, I can certainly well, understand that there's a big debate over, as you mentioned, rehabilitation versus just sending somebody a- away right. for their crimes. Right. But, you know, I think this is more about wrong person, wrong fit wrong for, for, for the facility. I, again, I don't think people are are uh, necessarily questioning the value of healing lodges. It's just what kind of system allows this to happen? Clearly, somebody's not watching what's going on here. Right. Well, and you know, on the other side of that coin, I think the biggest, most frustrating aspect of this for me is the majority of people I'm familiar with are two, five, ten years past their eligibility dates, and they're still in maximum and medium security facilities. Yeah, like how does that happen? How does that happen? And this person get whisked right through? It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. But when I say about the oversimplification, what it tends to do, and we're less than a year out from an election cycle here, Mm -hmm. and what it does is it serves up the tough on crime and saying that this is... So I, I believe what happens you know, whether it's intended or not, is it's a reflection that here we are again, Canada's soft on crime, right. and we're not. And so this is an aberration. It's a one-off, and yes, it's a heinous case, and there's no defending it, and I'm glad it was caught, and I'm glad it's been rectified. I think, if anything, it's about transparency. Yeah, and, and, and I that think, doesn't exist. No, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, uh, another situation where the government dropped the ball here is, you know, there's the Prime Minister standing up when people uh, are in the House complaining about this and calling them ambulance chasers for, you know, for, you know, asking why someone who wasn't qualified to be someplace was there. Uh, and then when Tracy Lynn McClintock was moved back into a, a prison facility, uh, Ralph Goodale was asked about that and he had no comment. Then the next day she's moved. So they're moving right. her back in as secretly as they moved her back out. And, and again, I don't think the issues is the healing center here. It's wh- what's going on and how transparent is the system? Yeah, no, I understand. And, then, and, and on that point, I would say that, that Parliament typically shouldn't, be playing that big of a role in day-to-day decisions and corrections. Again, they're not familiar with it. Um, this is something I'm sure that landed as a surprise to everybody. Yeah. Information before it was known was, was being put out there. Uh, there was a lot of erroneous stuff to begin with about, about this case. I know I spoke to it when it first came out. Um, <laughs> I, I just have to say... How involved, I think the question is, how involved do we want Parliament to be in the day-to-day operations of Corrections Canada? And, and I would say I would prefer not at all. And the reason for that is they are not familiar with it. Like this, this landed, and, and, then I, and to be fair to Mr. Trudeau, I think, is the week prior, the details of this case were shared in the House of Commons. And I, and I thought that was... Uh, um, unfortunate. I, I, I think that it could have been certainly put forward without going into explicit details. It's really hard for people to ingest this, and I do understand it's important, and I do think in the end they got it right. But I think this comes down to the whole age-old, you know, the liberals are soft and the conservatives are right. tough. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just that's an oversimplified approach. No, I certainly understand that. Where do you think this is going from here as we head into an election? Well, it seems as though 
it seems to be certainly something that's on the platform agenda. Uh, Mr. Shearer has uh, come out with a very strong um, response to recent crime in Toronto, gun, gun use and gangs. Uh, he's made it clear that he wants to be tough on that. So I see this as something that will probably be pretty topical uh, in the year heading into uh, October. Hmm. Lee Chappelle has been with us, Canadian Prison Consulting, talking about uh, the release of Terry Lynn McClintock into a Indigenous Healing Lodge and then put back into a condition, a typical facility. Lee, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, a new book has been released by Luca McDonough, uh, Luca McNada's mother. Uh, Alex Pearson talked about this last night. Uh, we were chatting about this on her show and actually uh, interviewed the mother. We'll play you some clips of that. But it sort of brought up the discussion, should a murderer's mother tell her kid's story, should they profit from any crime like this uh, on Twitter it's it's gaining reaction Facebook too Eric says sure and any profits delivered from telling the story should go to her kids victims 100% Marty says no maybe uh, someone is interested in how the mind works would great to read this book to better understand his psychotic nature uh, but other than that interesting note too from Charlotte at Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com she sent me two I'm going to read you both I read your article on the news feed I have no issues with his mother publishing the book about her son, even those mothers of killers, love their children, and what purpose is served by not allowing her to write a book? Only the parents of innocent people are allowed to write of their experiences? Her son is evil and wicked beyond belief, but I expect that his mother knows that. I thanked her for writing the note. She wrote back again, uh, years ago when I lived in Calgary, a dreadful crime occurred when a junior police officer was killed, run over by a kid who had stolen a car. Uh, the police officer had, against the instructions received from a ranking officer, placed a spike belt on the road. While doing that, he was struck and killed by the kid in the stolen car. Uh, the young officer has a memorial uh, for him on the roadway, flowers, teddy bears, etc. A tragic event, and no one can deny that. She goes on to say, But I knew the mother of the kid behind the wheel, and she wept along with the mother of the young police officer. She loved her child, notwithstanding the dreadful event that he was the cause of. No one gave her any sympathy as she was the mother of a killer. We are too quick to point a finger and denigrate someone. I think McNana's mother must feel an overwhelming guilt over something she had no control over. Thanks for allowing me to express my feelings. FYI, I was a paralegal in Alberta for 40 plus years and did have the opportunity to work on a whole pile of criminal matters, some very sensational. There is always a backstory. Uh, we're going to play you some clips of this interview with uh, Luca McNaughta's mother. And also, uh, uh, this is from Alex Pearson's show last night. This is Alex asking her how she found out about the story and what her son had done. Well, it wasn't a phone call. Um, it, I ended up... Um, the pol- it, I explained in the book, the police had showed up at my house, and I was assuming it was for something different. Mm-hmm. Um, the following day, I believe it was, um, I heard it on the, ra- on the, the TV. And it was, um, it, it was devastating. Uh, my world as I knew it was 
I knew it would never be the same. Uh, this is Luca McNada's mother, Anna Yorkin. This is her talking about the relationship she now has with her son. Um, the emotions in the beginning were overwhelming, obviously, for both of us. I was um, on my end, and he was facing trial, and I was not in a position to go to trial due to my health. Mm-hmm. I felt very guilty, and I still do, that I wasn't there for my son. But we reconnected, and um, our relationship has been a wonderful one. He's, to me, he will always be my son, and I love him. And so you've obviously worked through a lot since the day uh, that you learned about what he had done to, to Lin Jun. Have you ever spoken to their family? Has he ever, your son, expressed any kind of guilt or regret, uh, anything? Has he reached out to them? Um, that I can't confirm. I don't know. Um, I personally have not. I passed my condolences along to the Montreal police to pass on to them. Um, and I have put my condolences in the book. And what does Lucas say about what happened? Does he have regret? Does he feel any remorse or guilt? It's, it's a subject that, um, we haven't openly discussed because I think it's going to take a lot of time to get to that. That's interesting that that in this many years, that conversation still hasn't uh, been had. Is that because it's too hard for you or is it because Luca does not want to talk about it? I, I feel it would be very difficult for me at this point or, you know, in the near future even to hear or to even want to hear mm-hmm. details. Um, it's, uh, it's something that not many people go through. And Do, do you live I, in a I, sense I, of I, denial? I mean, is that fair to say that you live no. in a sense of denial or no? No. No. I've, I've come to terms with the fact that my son is, he was accused and convicted of first-degree mm-hmm. murder. I do. I come to, I've come to terms with that. But um, the aftermath is very hard to deal with. Certainly. I mean, from the victim side of it. All right. That's uh, an excerpt from Alex Pearson's uh, interview with Anna York. And she is the mother of Luca McNada, who has uh, just written a book. Many are questioning that. Uh, let's bring in Anne Brocklehurst, crime journalist, author of the book Dark Ambition, The Shocking Crime of Della Millard and Mark Smitch. And she is with us now. And thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. Should we be questioning this mother's need to write a book about this? You know, and and, and I guess publishing is publishing it is another question. Um, yeah, I, I think those are legitimate questions to ask and debate. And um, I know myself that um, anyone who writes about crime often does face these questions. So uh, yes, I think it's perfectly okay to question her uh, right to write this book, to publish it, and our reactions to it. In the end, you know, some have said she shouldn't profit from her son's crimes. Uh, Is that our decision when we purchase a book? Uh, Is it her making that decision or ours when we decide to read it? Uh, I think it's, it's both. It's 
are a decision too, but I, I think we also have to um, be a little more analytical in looking at this. Is she profiting from her son's crime, which I think none of us would like, or is she profiting from offering insights into a terrible event, which doesn't sound so bad? Now, I'm not suggesting that her book does offer insights. I haven't read it, but and what I've read about it suggests that it's not um, going to be a particularly enlightening experience to read it. But if it were, um, you know, she's an author like other authors, and what she does with her earnings is up to her. My guess is is that whatever she would make from this, she would gladly uh, return if she could change past events. Does that matter at all? Um, yes and, and, and no. There, there is just one other thing that I would like to add to is people have a very mistaken impression about how much a book makes. Um, they hear about these giant contracts. Especially that, in Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They hear about these giant contracts that best-selling authors make. But the truth of it is, you know, most authors are lucky to get more than $10,000 from a right. book. So there aren't um, huge, huge profits there. And, I, you know, I think it's a legitimate question to ask um, in this case. And, it, you know, where is the money going? Does she choose to donate some of it? Um, I'm not saying that she should or, or shouldn't, but I think it's a fair question to ask. Uh, I received an interesting email from a listener that said that um, many don't have sympathy for the mother of a killer. Uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, they want to denigrate someone. Is that displaced anger? I mean, you know, if there's somebody in the family that's that's done this, the whole family is disgraced by it. How do they, how, how do they move forward? So um, I'm going to say it's not always displaced anger. Sometimes there are legitimate reasons to be angry at the parents and family of a killer. For example, if the killer had a horrible abuse of childhood. Right. Um, which, you know, psychopathic killers very often do, then you should be mad at the parents. Um, Or, you know, if you have someone in their uh, room, you know, some kid who's got a fascination with guns, etc., and is in his room and his parents never take any action, then you should. On the other hand, you do have children with mental illness. The Sandy Hook killer comes to mind, you know, where... You had a mother who was clearly trying her best, although she was doing things wrong with a mentally ill child who in another era would have been institutionalized. And she obviously handled it the wrong way. But I think to have empathy with her, you know, is I, I can understand why people do. So I think these situations are always different and you have to... Um, look at the individual situations and assess them on their own merits. I think when you say, oh, the family is never responsible, it, it, it's just as um, mm. absolute um, a point of view as saying, oh, the parents are to blame. Mm. Yeah, you know, often take credit for good, but not for bad or vice versa, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And each um, situation is complicated and unique in its own way. Do you think you commented that there might there's probably not a lot in there, uh, and and you know obviously none of us have read the book at this point. Is there uh, any? Do you think there's anything to learn from listening to a mother's story? 
Um, I do. I think it depends on the degree of um, insight that the mother has and how willing she is to open herself up to analysis and her role uh, in what happened. And in this case, based on the news reports I've read about the book, it doesn't sound to me like she is. For example, um, one of the psychiatrists who examined Luca Magnata at some point phoned and wanted to speak to her, and she wasn't interested in, in speaking to him. So I think it really depends on how much they're willing to tell um, and reveal. Why do you think this mother did this? Um, Is it cathartic? Some may say, well, this is just going to draw more attention and and, and more hate if it's out there. Uh, Why do this? Maybe the time was just right. I mean, the media furor that surrounded the trial died down. The author might have just happened to approach her at the right time where she's come to some kind of terms with what happened and was more willing to do it at this point. I I can't read her mind, but I, I can say it doesn't shock me that people change their minds years after an event because they often do. Uh, your book, uh, Dark Ambition, The Shocking Crime of Della Millard and Mark Smitch, and of course that resonates in this area uh, quite a bit, even still. Uh, during that case, we never heard from Della Millard's mother. Odd that we don't hear from one, we hear from another. Mind you, we didn't hear from, from this woman during the trial, uh, but now later. Your thoughts on that, on, on not hearing from his mother? Um, Well, his mother really dislikes the media. She was an activist in um, against, she campaigned against the seal hunt many years ago, and she grew to not like the media at that point. And she just um, steadfastly refused to talk, which isn't an unusual situation. That happens a lot. And that's why I think we do have this great curiosity, which I think is justified about the kind of families that these killers grew up in. Um, And so many of them won't talk, or when they will talk, they give, they're still in denial. And I heard that interview with Alex Pearson, and she was saying she wasn't in denial. Well, sure, she's not in denial that her son killed someone and was convicted, But the bigger question is, is she in denial about her role and Mm. his family life and his background and all those things? And that's where I'm not convinced that she isn't in denial. Um, Getting back to the Millard story, many questioned his mother's knowledge of this. And again, the fact that the whole trial went through and and she wasn't a part of it. Um, Is she responsible for his actions? Well, what I would say is this. I think we need to look at the family because Millard's a psychopath, and often psychopaths come from families where there's been some kind of abuse in childhood. And again, you know, people sometimes get upset when uh, when I point this out, but to explain is not to excuse. So if you look at how Dellen Millard grew up, what we learned at the Wayne Millard trial And what I learned in the course of my reporting is that, you know, his father was extremely peculiar. He was an alcoholic um, 
hermit, essentially, locked in his, his bedroom a lot of the time with um, cats. And Millard's parents were separated. His mother um, had at some point, she had some kind of breakdown and, and difficulties of her own. She's also being described to me as lacking an empath- empathy like her son. So I, I don't know all the details, but I do know for a fact what I've just told you, which shows that he came from a family which had some severe dysfunction. So can we question it and ask questions about her? Yes. And, you know, the idea that um, some people have this idea that in the same way that some people accuse the parents, some people also leap to excuse the parents. And in, in the case of Millard, there are some very strong indications that his upbringing may have played quite a strong role in how he turned out. The collateral damage is massive, isn't it? It can be. It can be. And again, I want to emphasize something. Not all people who come from abusive households, obviously, and families end up being killers. It's rare. But among those that end up who end up as killers, the abuse in their background and in their childhood is a common factor. When you uh, when you did your work in and around the Millard and Smitch case, um, did anything stand out for you in that trial? Anything that different from any other case like this? I mean, of course, they're all different and all have different uh, 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 criteria and, and 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 conditions behind them. But is is this a typical case, or is there something out of the ordinary there? Well, no, it's it's a very atypical case, which is why the Millard case made headlines. I mean, there were uh, just so many things that were out of the, the ordinary, starting with the fact that Tim Bosma was a random targeted victim, which is yeah. very unusual, you know. And then we got the fact that Millard was uh, wealthy, you know, and I, I think we have a certain also interest in why would something who to someone who to all outward appearances has everything in life end up being a killer and that's what those questions were partly answered at the trial so i think it was fascinating to for everyone fascinating and awful i i don't want to make this sound like it was entertainment mm-hmm. to see all the people in the large circle who you know, maybe had knowledge to a certain extent of what was going on or didn't have and why they didn't and why they didn't question him more. So, uh, you know, I I do think at bottom what we're all trying to figure out is the psychology of of this um, and how this can happen. So uh, I don't think it's a bad thing to want to understand. And Brocklehurst has been with us, crime journalist, author of the book Dark Ambition, The Shocking Crime of Della Millard and Mark Smitch, talking about the recent release from Anna Yorkin, uh, the mother of Luca McNada, and her book uh, talking about her son and what transpired there. And thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.